happy holidays and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Fa la 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 la. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hello, Julia. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's Christmas Day. And a belated happy Hanukkah to all of our yes. Jewish listeners. Absolutely. Happy Kwanzaa. It just really snuck up on us. We just missed. Oh, my we God. We missed Hanukkah. Hanukkah flew by. <laughs> I mean, it's eight days. You'd think you would like we stop had, at least yeah. in the middle. But no. Oh. <clears throat> well, today's Christmas Day. We hope that you are listening to us either traveling to or from a uh, family or, or running friend, away from. Or running away yeah. from. I hope. I, I imagine there are some listeners who have um, their headphones in and they're hiding in a bedroom <laughs> somewhere upstairs with um, a tall glass of whiskey. And us. So thank you for choosing us to be your companions. <laughs> to be your escape. Exactly. So um, we uh, we actually have a holiday greeting. Yes. From one of our from one of our fans. One of our listeners. One of our loyal listeners from the beginning. Yep. Kathleen my, B. Yep. My fellow low-voiced bitch, Kathleen. <laughs> Hello, Kathleen. And uh, she sent this to us um, a week or so ago. So yeah. we're going to play it for all of you. Hey, Julia and Lauren, this is Kathleen from Maryland, Kathleen with a K, and here are some quick Maryland State trivia for you. Our official state sport is jousting. Our state flag is the only state flag in the United States to directly reference English heraldry. And appropriately for this time of year, the state song Maryland, My Maryland is sung to the melody O Tannenbaum or O Christmas Tree. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and thanks for the great shows and all the laughs. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, so Kathleen. Cute. Thank you, Kathleen. That was very lovely. I didn't know their official state sport was jousting. <laughs> That's why there's a medieval <laughs> medieval times in every city, Lauren. Really? <laughs> I didn't see <laughs> Maryland. practice somehow. I guess. I didn't really see Maryland as a, as a real medieval type <laughs> state, but apparently I was wrong. So that was lovely. Um, thank you, Kathleen, for your uh, for your holiday greeting, and uh, we hope you guys are having a good holiday, yeah. a good Christmas. So, in a turn of events, we are not doing a Christmas themed episode. No, it's snuck year, up on- as you as you know, <laughs> snuck up on us um, both. <laughs> last year, Lauren did a really great episode about Santa Claus sure and did. his iterations all around the world. So, um, you should check that out in our back catalog if you really are in need of more Christmas spirit. Yes. Um, so, for this week, though. Uh, my present to you is learning about a terrible event in U.S. Oh. history, oh, no. in which honestly there were no winners. Oh, oh good. Yeah, yeah. we're mm. gonna do this. Nothing says Christmas we're gonna like talk about the Battle of Little Bighorn. Oh no! All right. <laughs> Oh jeez, this is not going to be strap a, in. This is not going to be like a laugh a minute, is it? No. Oh boy. So the Battle of the Little Bighorn, known to the Lakota and other Plains Indians as the Battle of the Greasy Grass, and mm. also commonly referred to as Custer's Last Stand, was an armed engagement between combined forces of the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes, and the Seventh Cavalry Regiment of the United States Army. The battle, which resulted in the defeat of U.S. forces, was the most significant action of the Great Sioux War of eighteen seventy six. It took place on June 25th and 26th, 1876, along the Little Bighorn River in the Crow Native American Reservation in southeastern Montana Territory. So before we get into this, here are some brief descriptions of the Native American tribes involved and where they were from. So the Sioux, S-I-O-U-X, they were groups of Native American tribes and First Nations tribes. So the indigenous people of Canada, as well as the Native Americans in the U.S., um, people from North America. So the Sioux can refer to any ethnic group within the Great Sioux Nation. Uh, The Sioux have three major divisions based on language divisions in their groups, the Dakota, the Lakota, and the Nakota. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to remember (laughs) once you realize it's... They all rhyme. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Then we have the Cheyenne. So they're one of the indigenous peoples of the Great Plains. Um, Today, they're split into two federally recognized nations, the Southern Cheyenne, who are the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes in Oklahoma, and the Northern Cheyenne, who are in Montana. At first contact with European settlers, the Cheyenne were living in what is now Minnesota. 
and the Arapaho. They are a tribe of Native Americans historically living on the plains of Colorado and Wyoming. Uh, they are close allies of the Cheyenne and loosely aligned with the Lakota and Dakota of the Sioux. Okay. okay. Now, the main character of this whole shebang, oh why boy. you probably know what this event is somehow in your brain from history. Okay. So, George Armstrong Custer was born in Ohio in 1839. He was the son of a blacksmith and farmer. Um, he had several siblings, including a brother named Thomas, who will feature into the story later on okay um Uh so george later earned a certificate to teach elementary school in 1856 but that wasn't really all that exciting Mm. um the following year he entered the u.s military academy at west point where he was shall we say not the brightest bulb in the chandelier um custer graduated dead last in his class in 1861 what a dummy In his four years at West Point, he amassed a record total of 726 demerits, one of the worst conduct records in the history of the Academy. This guy sounds like uh, a real real Uh, piece of work. A fellow cadet recalled Custer as declaring there were only two places in a class, the head and the foot. And since he had no desire to be the head, he aspired to be the foot. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he was trying hard to... To be the worst. Be the worst. Cool. So under ordinary conditions, Custer's low class rank would result in like an obscure posting in the army. But Custer was lucky enough to graduate as the Civil War broke out. And so that was basically all hands on deck. Sure. So he just thrust him out there. So in April 1861, Custer joined the Union Army's cavalry and actually proved himself there a competent, reliable soldier in battles such as the First Battle of Bull Run in Manassas, Virginia, and the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, I'm going to do a future topic on the Battle of Gettysburg just Thank because you. that shows up a lot. Um, but, you know, keep this in mind. So um, Custer was promoted several times despite having no direct command experience. Um, but Custer did become one of the youngest generals in the Union Army at age 23. His relentless pursuit of the Army of Northern Virginia is often partially credited for helping to end the civil war okay okay so custer to his credit he wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty unlike many other generals he led his men from the front instead of from behind and was often the first to plunge into battle in february 1864 custer married elizabeth or libby bacon um she wasn't initially impressed with him um (laughs) and her father judge daniel bacon disapproved of custer as a match because he was just the son of a blacksmith Mm. it wasn't until well after custer had been promoted to the rank of brevet brigadier general that he gained the approval of judge bacon and the go-ahead to marry libby Judge in 1866 <laughs> yeah <laughs> in 1866 he was promoted to lieutenant colonel in charge of the 7th u.s cavalry unit and went with libby to kansas to fight in the plains indian wars mm-hmm. so the great plains in the mid-19th century they were the f- last real native american holdout in america so settlers were colonizing the far west before the civil war happened but not too many had actually settled in the plains due to its weather and you know large native american population sure and they were scared of them at that point um, but after the civil war far west land became scarcer and the u.s government granted 10 percent of plains land to settlers and railroads yeah so basically a confrontation between the plains indians against the settlers and the government forces be- was inevitable yeah of course and I'm saying Plains Indians because they refer to themselves as the Plains Indians as okay. a group. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to say Native Americans in this. Good for you. Um, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> No, explaining. I think it's excellent. We try yeah. and, and be respectful of all, yes. all people, places, and things. Yes. yes. Um, so by the late 1860s, most Native Americans had been forced onto reservations or outright killed. Um, vowing to avoid the same fate, the Plains Indians settled in for a long and fierce holdout. In the hopes of squashing the Native Americans' livelihood, the government allowed the railroads to kill scores of buffalo herds in order to lay railroad tracks. Um, They also urged hunters to kill as many buffalo as possible without any oversight, and they encouraged trains to stop so passengers could get off and massacre buffalo for sport. Oh, my God. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, The more that the whites needlessly slaughtered the buffalo, the angrier the Native Americans grew. Yeah. Um, Some staged brutal attacks on settlers and railroad workers without regard to age or gender. And to the Native Americans, the railroad represented an end to their livelihood since for millennia they'd relied on the free roaming buffalo to survive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So by the time Custer arrived on the scene in 1866, the war between the army and the Plains Indians was like really in full force. into it. Yeah. Custer's first assignment was helping Major General Winfield Scott Hancock carry out what was essentially a shock and awe campaign to overwhelm the Native Americans. At the end of the campaign, Custer deserted his post and joined his wife at Fort Riley, Kansas. Okay. Like, like he was out there fighting and then he was like, nah, I'm going to head home. I'm going to head home. 
That's weird. Um, So he was court-martialed for this in 1867 for being AWOL and suspended without rank and pay for one year. So the fact that Custer, who is a highly decorated and well-respected commander, deserted, left many of his men and his superiors both confused and angry. Yeah. Um, Looking back, it really also demonstrated his inclination to make rash decisions, a trait Uh that would have devastating consequences later on. Um, Despite Custer's now tarnished reputation, the army still needed him. Oh, in September 1868, he returned to duty before his court-martial sentence was up, and he took back command of the 7th Cavalry on frontier duty. On November 28, 1868, he led a campaign against a village of Cheyenne led by Chief Black Kettle at the Battle of Washita River, killing all Native American warriors present and earning himself as a reputation as a ruthless Native American fighter. Oh, 53 Cheyenne women and children were taken <gasps> captive by the 7th Cavalry after the battle, um, and... I don't know what happened to them. Oh, my gosh. Um, And that's where Custer learned that fighting Native Americans was much different than fighting Confederate soldiers. Uh, The Plains Indians were spread out and elusive. They knew the ground. They rode fast horses. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, they knew the terrain. Um, And these Native Americans were resolute fighters since they were fighting not just for their individual lives, but also their entire culture. So this is... This is this isn't great. I feel like um, in American history in high school and stuff, we Mm -hmm. kind of we you know, we talk about the Civil War. We talk about Western expansion. We talk about the gold rush and then we talk about industrialism. But we don't really touch. You don't really talk much about what was happening with the Native Americans. Yeah, I feel like the idea of manifest (laughs) destiny is still alive and well in the history books of uh, the U.S. But they're yeah. Yeah, without any regard to the devastation that happened to the native peoples of this country and are still happening. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest, like reservations are not the best place right now. Right. And there are a lot of native women who are, you know, it's like it's like five and six native women have been sexually assaulted right. or something horrendous mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, I mean, that that is really glossed over in this idea of like, well, we've conquered this land, this land that was just empty. Like, yeah. This land that just needed to be conquered, but it was empty, by the way. Mm-hmm, you know, definitely. there wasn't anything there. It's okay. Don't worry. It was ours. <sighs> oh, boy. Really? It's Jewel for a Christmas episode? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, I was like, this has just been on my mind. I just want to do this. No, it's do this good. topic. And it just just so turned out. That it was being released today. Okay. It's okay. You know what? We need some we need some sobering historical knowledge today of all days, the day of Christ's birth. <laughs> you know, we need to know what ha- we need to think long and hard about what we did to the native peoples of this country. So yes. please continue. Um, you got a little bit of goss here ooh, at this ooh, point. I want some hot tea. So in November 1868, following the Battle of Rashida River, Custer was alleged by a fellow captain, two scouts, and by Cheyenne oral tradition to have unofficially married a woman named <gasps> Mona Sita, the daughter of the Cheyenne chief Little Rock in the winter or early spring of 1868 to 1869. Uh, Mona Sita gave birth to a child in January 1869, two months after the Battle of Washita. Um, Cheyenne oral history tells that she also bore a second child, fathered by Custer in late 1869. Um, Some historians, however, believe that Custer had actually become sterile after contracting, say it with me, gonorrhea. Uh, We'll get it. You he know what? We're going to get it one day. He while at West Point. Like that doesn't oh. seem like a like a breeding ground oh. for hmm. venereal diseases. I wonder how but that okay. happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. So 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 some historians believe that Custer was actually sterile because he had contracted gonorrhea at West Point, and that the father of Monacita's second child was actually his brother Thomas. So okay. this is not only he's married. By the way, he's no, married yeah, I was to Libby. Say, what about his girl Bacon? He met. He yeah. He's married to Libby Bacon. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have any children because he's supposedly sterile. But um, he does unofficially marry this native girl, according to like several witnesses. Yeah, not just like yeah, somebody was telling. It, yeah, did you hear about old Custer? No, this is like several people have said he married this lady Monacita, who was the daughter of a chief who had been killed in the battle. So she may have been one of the women and children that was taken along with, uh, yeah, the, yeah. with the group when they left. Um, but I mean, he spent a lot of time with her. And also, so did his brother, apparently. Uh, also, let's talk about consent, because n- something tells me that Monacita wasn't like, "Ooh, yeah, get me a piece of this guy who murdered my dad and all of my people. Right. Yeah. So 
Mary, we will use mm-hmm. judicious scare quotes yes. on that one. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's suspect. Yeah. He may have he may have taken care of them in some way. He may have paid for some things. He may have provided for them in some way. Possibly. But still, this yeah. is all very like this mm. isn't great, George. Yeah. Well, very little of what George did. Mm-hmm. He's got some impulse control problems, this yeah, guy. Yeah, he sure does. Yeah. Yeesh. Well, it gets worse. Let's get there. <laughs> Great. In 1873, Custer faced a group of attacking Lakota Native Americans at the Northern Pacific Railway Survey at Yellowstone. Um, it was his first encounter with Lakota leaders, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Oh, yeah. But it wouldn't be his last. So the Lakota, again, they're one of the three Sioux tribes of the Plains, and their current lands are in North and South Dakota. Sitting Bull was a hunk papa Lakota leader. So he that was his segment of the Lakota okay. group. Um, for, he was the hunk papa, which I kind of like that. Yeah. It's fun. Um, who, and Sitting Bull led his people during the years of resistance to the U.S. government policy. So he was born sometime around 1831 along the Yellowstone River in present-day Montana. His name in the Lakota language means Buffalo Bull Who Sits Down. Okay. (laughs) I like that. Um, He fought in Red Cloud's War from 1866 to 1868, attacking U.S. forces who were trying to take their lands. And then you also have Crazy Horse. So he was an Oglala Lakota leader who Mm -hmm. also took up arms against the federal government to fight against encroachment by white American settlers. And he was born sometime around 1840. So several years prior to all this, in April 1868, the U.S. government had signed a treaty recognizing South Dakota's Black Hills as part of the Great Sioux Reservation in the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Uh, The Great Sioux Reservation comprised all of present-day South Dakota west of the Missouri River, including the sacred Black Hills and the life-giving Missouri River. Under Article 11 of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, the Great Sioux Nation retained off-reservation hunting rights to a much larger area south to the Republican and Platte Rivers and east to the Bighorn Mountains. And under Article 12, no cessation of land would be valid unless approved by three-fourths of the adult males. Okay? Okay. However, after gold was discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota in 1874, the government had a change of heart and they decided to break the treaty and take back the land. Oh my gosh. Custer was tasked with relocating all Native Americans in the area to reservations by January 31st, 1876. Any Native American who didn't comply would be considered hostile. The Native Americans, however, did not take this deception lying down. Mm -hmm. Those that could left their reservations and traveled to Montana to join forces with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse at their fast-growing camp. Thousands strong, the group eventually settled on the banks of the Little Bighorn River. All right? You getting Uh there? Setting the scene? It's happening. We're in Montana. Let's do this. Oh, no. So the U.S. Army dispatched three columns of soldiers, including Custer and his 7th Cavalry, to round up the Native Americans and return them to the reservations. The plan was for Custer's Cavalry and the infantry of Brigadier General Alfred Terry to meet up with the troops under the command of Colonel John Gibbon and Brigadier General George Crook. They would then find the Native Americans, surround them, and force their surrender obviously sure yeah okay um one of the generals crook was delayed but terry custer and gibbon rendezvoused in mid-june a scouting party found a native american trail headed toward the little bighorn valley and the group decided custer should move in surround the native americans and await reinforcements so they're like you do it yeah okay oh, yeah that's good go There's ahead a trail there yeah yeah go ahead so meanwhile, at Little Bighorn Valley, the Lakota leader Sitting Bull had a vision in which he saw many soldiers falling upside down into the Lakota camp, which his people took as a foreshadowing of a major victory in which a large number of American soldiers would be killed. Get so out. this is documented that he had this vision before yeah. any of this happened, that they would they were gonna that win. they were gonna be victorious. And so this actually helped to propel like the you know, the enthusiasm and yeah, positivity and what would happen yeah. at the at the event. Oh my gosh, that's cool. So Custer forged ahead, but things didn't go quite as planned. Well, around midday on June 25th, 1876, his scouts located Sitting Bull's camp near the Little Bighorn River in the Crow Indian Reservation in southeastern Montana Territory. Instead of waiting for reinforcements, Custer planned a surprise attack for the next day. He moved it up, though, when he thought the Native Americans had discovered his position. So Custer divided his 600 men into four groups. He ordered one small battalion to stay with the supply train, and the other two, led by Captain Frederick Benteen and Major Marcus Reno, to attack from the south and prevent the Native Americans from escaping. Custer would lead the final group, about 210 men, and plan to attack from the north. Reno's group attacked the Native Americans first, but swiftly retreated after discovering they were completely outnumbered. And by the time they'd regrouped, at least 30 troops were dead. Wow. 
Captain Benteen's troops came to Major Reno's aid, and the combined battalions joined forces on what is now known as Reno Hill. They remained there despite Custer's order, which said, Benteen, come on, big village, be quick, bring packs. P.S. Bring packs. <laughs> P.S. The, the most way, important part of that. Way, bring those packs, please. please. <laughs> the exact events of Custer's last stand are unclear. What is known is that neither Benteen nor Reno were able to help Custer, despite admitting later they'd heard heavy gunfire coming from Custer's position to the north. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> Do you think that they hated him? They were like, this guy is such a pain in my ass. What if they were like, oh no, someone help us. They were like, I don't hear anything. Do you, Benteen? That would be terrible. I mean, I'm just were, saying like. There were 210 other guys besides Custer involved. That's true. <laughs> that would be really awful. <laughs> if they, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. They're like, he can figure it out. Fine. So basically, <laughs> Custer and his men were left to face scores of war-hungry Native Americans on their own. Um, some historians believe that many of Custer's men's panicked, dismounted from their horses, and then were shot dead as they fled. Holy cow. No one knows when Custer realized he was in trouble, since no eyewitnesses from his troop lived to tell the tale. Oh, my God. Are you <laughs> serious? Yes. Oh, that's the, rough. The Sioux and Cheyenne warriors, led by Crazy Horse, brutally attacked with Winchester repeating rifles, as <gasps> well as bow and arrows. So wow. it's not just like they didn't just have bows and arrows. No. They had Americans rifles yeah because which is your repeating rifles also yeah so by that time and a lot of people you know and still to this day people feel that native american tribes are like they're ancient and yeah. they're primitive oh, like yeah. all of this stuff no but i mean this is pretty early on in this manifest destiny like moving into yeah. native american territories and like trying to take over the land they had all the same technology yes. that the white people had yep like they had all of that uh-huh and they knew how to use it and they were much better at <laughs> figuring out how to get around and like killing people in an efficient and dangerous way. Right. So the fact that they were like, Oh no, they have guns. <laughs> I think like, they didn't expect them to have guns. I, I guess honestly. they didn't, but I mean, they it's their they fault. They would round them up and they would come peacefully. Oh, to the sure. Reservation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, okay. No. <laughs> that, nope. So oh, yeah, yeah. as the as the U.S. troops were cut down, the Native warriors stripped the dead of their firearms and ammunition, with the yeah. result that the return fire from the cavalry steadily decreased, while the fire from the Native Americans constantly increased. <laughs> yeah, because they were taking the guns. weapons. <laughs> this is like this is like video games one hundred and one. This is video games one hundred and one. If any of these guys had played a single video game, this would not have happened. I'm just saying. <laughs> and what else is sad is the surviving troops may have shot their remaining horses to use as shields for a final stand oh, on the knoll at the north end of the ridge. Talking about cutting off your nose to spite <sighs> your face. Honestly. So most of Custer's men were armed with Springfield single shot carbine rifles and Colt 45 revolvers. Okay. So they were easily outgunned. Sure. Yeah. Because you got to uh-huh. like, it's like, you bang, 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 bang. And you're like, you got to reload. Yeah. And meanwhile, they have the Winchester repeating rifles. Um, Custer's line and command structure quickly collapsed. And soon it was every man for himself. In the end, Custer found himself on the defensive with nowhere to run or hide and was killed along with every other man in his battalion. Yeah. His body was found near Custer Hill, also known as Last Stand Hill, alongside the bodies of 40 of his men, including his brother and nephew, and dozens of dead horses. Uh, Custer had suffered two bullet wounds, one near his heart and one in the head. It is unclear which wound killed him. Uh, yeah, both are fatal, I would yeah, say. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Just but I've play seen one my sh- on TV. Yes, I've seen my share of movies, and I know that both of those are kill shots. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Um, in the heat of the battle, it's likely that the Na- the Native American who shot Custer knew that he had killed a U.S. Army icon. Even so, once word spread that Custer was dead, many Native Americans claimed to be his executioner. Oh, sure, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I did that. That was me. Um, after the battle, Native Americans stripped, scalped, and dismembered their enemies' corpses on the battlefield, possibly yeah. because they believed the souls of disfigured bodies were doomed to walk the yep. earth forever. Yeah. So. That's f- like the ultimate insult, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, if you are disfigured, that means, we, sorry, you don't get to go to heaven or mm-hmm. anything. You got to stick around here. So that's, I mean, that really indicates, like, how high uh, and hostile yeah. and, like, upsetting this whole like time period mm-hmm. was for these native peoples like they wanted their this is like their livelihood these are their lives they're not just fighting just to fight yeah. you know 
So the fight was an overwhelming victory for the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho. The U.S. 7th Cavalry, a force of 700 men, suffered a major defeat while under the command of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated. The total U.S. casualty count included 268 dead and 55 severely wounded. The Battle of the Little Bighorn didn't end with the massacre of Custer and his men. Uh, the Native Americans quickly regrouped and pursued Reno's and Benteen's battalions. Sure, yeah. The troops fought valiantly until General Terry's reinforcements finally arrived. Now it was the Native Americans who were outnumbered, so they packed up camp and fled, bringing the largest defeat of the U.S. Army during the Plains Indian Wars to an end. The Native Americans reveled in their victory for a time, but their celebration was short-lived, as was their freedom. When word of Custer's death reached Americans proudly celebrating their nation's centennial on July 4th, they demanded retribution. The U.S. Army intensified their efforts to hunt down all Native American outlaws and either wipe them out or force them back onto reservations. And within a year, most had been rounded up or killed. (sighs) So... A year later, in May 1877, Crazy Horse surrendered at Fort Robinson, Nebraska, where he was later bayoneted and killed after an altercation with an army officer. Um, Sidebar, uh, Crazy Horse is commemorated by the incomplete Crazy Horse Memorial in the Black Hills of South Dakota, near the town of Bern. Um, Like the nearby Mount Rushmore National Memorial, it is a monument carved out of a mountainside. Yes, I know this this memorial. Yeah, the sculpture was begun by Polish-American sculptor Korzak Zjalkowski. Um, who had worked under Gustav Borglum on Mount Rushmore in 1948. Um, plans call for the completed monument to be 641 feet wide and 563 feet high. Wow. Um, uh, Zylkowski was inspired to create the Crazy Horse Memorial after receiving a letter from Native Lakota Chief Henry Standing Bear, who asked if he would be interested in creating a monument for the Native North Americans to show that the Native American nations also have their heroes. Mm -hmm. The Native Americans consider Thunderhead Mountain, where the monument is being carved, to be sacred ground. Thunderhead Mountain is situated between Custer and Hill City. Uh, Upon completion, the head of Crazy Horse will be the world's largest sculpture of the human head, measuring approximately 87 feet tall, more than 27 feet taller than the 60 foot high faces of the U.S. presidents depicted on Mount Rushmore. And the Crazy Horse Memorial as a whole will be the largest sculpture in the world. There is no target completion date at this time, um, but in 1998, the face of Crazy Horse was completed and dedicated. So this is a completely private project that's based completely on... um, you know, volunteer contributions. Wow. So they're, you know, there's no time, you know, there's yeah, no, yeah. they're just working uh, no on deadline. This, they're guess. just working on it as they can, but uh, so it's still being worked on still today. being worked on today. Wow. Yeah, pretty okay. interesting. So the crazy horse. Mm-hmm. Um, but after fleeing to Canada, sitting bull eventually surrendered in 1881. He toured with Buffalo Bill Cody's Buffalo Bill's wild west yes, show for four I heard months. About this. And he, that's where he became friends with Annie Oakley. Um, he was the one who gave her the nickname Little Sure Shot. Oh, that's sweet. Um, Will lived on Standing Rock Reservation until he was killed by a Native American agent policeman during a conflict at his house in 1890. Oh, um, so the dead at the Battle of Little Bighorn were given a quick burial where they fell by the first soldiers who arrived at the scene. Custer was later disinterred and reburied at West Point. Other troops who were also disinterred for private burials after that. Mm-hmm. In 1881, a memorial was erected in honor of those who lost their lives. A trench was dug below the memorial to rebury the remaining battlefield remains, and a marker was erected where each soldier had fallen in battle. While Custer never had the chance to defend his own actions at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, his widow Libby campaigned for his legacy and promoted him as a brave hero, cut down in the prime of his life while defending his country. Mm. The deaths of Custer and his troops became the best-known episode in the history of the American and Native American Wars, due in part to the painting commissioned by the brewery Anheuser-Busch as yes. part of an advertising campaign. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. I know <laughs> I this piece. This, I like this one. Yes, yes. You oh my God. Right. <laughs> so the enterprising company had ordered reprints of a dramatic work that depicted Custer's last stand and had them framed and hung in many U.S. saloons. And this created lasting impressions of the battle and the brewery's products in the minds of many bar patrons. So it was just essentially... What Libby Bacon did, uh-huh. Argur, Argur mm. Libby Bacon. Yeah. Um, she just really branded him to hell. Like, just oh, yeah. really made him out. Great marketing campaign, left, right, and center. And that's yes. why we know Custer's Last yes. Dance. Because for all intents and purposes, I mean, granted, it was very, it was a very dramatic thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it still, like, lasts to today. Yeah. 
considering that this wasn't like a, a major like civil right. war or like revolutionary war, or anything like that event, mm-hmm. the fact that it's still like and the in way the cultural that they lexicon. say it, that it's Custer's last stand. Yeah. Makes it sound like he was on the defense. Exactly. That like they were under attack yeah. and you know, he and his men bravely fought to the end. Yeah. When actually, yeah, like it was, they were, they were the ones else. who were attacking someone else's, and Land. it's interesting. I imagine that the context by which Custer's last stand is not super well known by people mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, it was his last stand. Last stand against who? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Probably uh-huh. the South or whatever. You know, like, who knows? Um, so that's another thing that really, really good branding and that it just makes it very, like, mm-hmm. whitewashed and pretty yeah, and just heroic. Yeah, like a hero. Yep. Just a hero. Don't ask any more questions. He's a hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <sighs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Time for the quiz. Oh, good. Okay, it's great. Called Little Big Horns. This is a quiz on horned animals and brass instruments. <laughs> Question one: This animal with a four-letter name sports a massive set of curved, bumpy horns and is a species of mountain goat from the Himalayas. What is the name of this posh mountain climbing creature, also called a Steinbock or a Bouquetin? Question two: You might find this amusing, yeah. What is the term for the use of the lips, facial muscles, tongue, and teeth in playing a wind or brass instrument? This includes shaping the lips to the mouthpiece of a brass instrument, allowing musicians to play at its full range with a clear tone and without strain to their muscles. Question three. From the Greek for nose-horned, members of the rhinoceros family are some of the largest remaining megafauna, or giant animals. Historically, rhinos have been under threat from humans who kill them for their horns, which can cost as much as gold on the black market. What is the name of the protein that makes up not only these precious rhino horns, but also human hair and nails? Question four. First appearing in the mid-19th century, making one of the newer instruments in the modern orchestra and concert band, this lonely, low-pitched musical instrument is also one of the largest. What type of instrument is this, which can be made with either piston or rotary valves and is often the butt of a joke? Question 5. This large antelope species that roams the arid parts of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula has two straight long horns protruding from the crown of its head. By what name do we call this creature? Despite its name's resemblance to another word meaning black, this antelope is usually pretty pale with a few dark marks around the face. Question six. Used mainly by the Boy Scouts and in the military, what boogie-woogie device is one of the simplest brass instruments having no valves or other pitch-altering devices? Question seven. Males of this species possess three brown horns, one on the nose and one above each eye, somewhat reminiscent of the dinosaur we call Triceratops. In fact, that's partially how it got its genus and species name. The Triosaurus jacksoni is what type of reptile, which is a master of disguise? Question eight, true or false? The same guy who invented the saxophone also developed a family of horned instruments called sax horns. Question nine. Multiple choice. On which type of animal would one find an ossicone? A, a horse. B, a giraffe. C, a dolphin. Or D, a human. And finally, question 10. This instrument is pretty chill. It tends to get marched out instead of a French horn because its bell faces forward instead of backward or to the side. I know I'd like to hear some more of it. What's this three-valve brass instrument called? give you about a minute to think and we'll be back with your answers got a pretty gal waiting for me while a rock here in the army some fool made a soldier of me I told her we'd marry and build us a home and Given all her charms to a blue uniform, some fool made a soldier of me. Some fool made a soldier of me, rock the park and ride in the rock cavalry. The day's getting hotter, I'm a near out of water, some fool made a soldier of me. I told General Custer I'm a dying of thirst And the heat is a-getting to me But he 
said, have no fear, there's a bigger river near. Some fool made a soldier of me. What? Oh my gosh. This is not good for LT. Okay. I'm sure it's it's fine. Okay. It's here fine. we go. No, no, I got it. It's good. <laughs> Question right. one. This animal with a four-letter name sports a massive set of curved bumpy horns and is a species of mountain goat from the Himalayas. What is the name of this posh mountain climbing creature, also called a Steinbach or a Bouquetin? Is it an ibex? It is an ibex. Yes. Yes. See? An ibex. They live in the mountains of the European Alps. Uh, their coat color is typically brownish gray and they have very distinctive curved horns. Alpine ibex tend to live in steep, rough terrain near the snow line, and they are also social, yet adult males and females segregate for most of the year, coming together only to mate. Oh, pretty right. good. That's the way to live. Yeah. Question two. <laughs> you might find this amusing. Yeah. What is the term for the use of lips, facial muscles, tongue, and teeth in playing a wind or brass instrument? Is it... <laughs> Ooh, I'm t- is it an o-ring or something an o-face an o-face <laughs> i'm sorry oh. i'm sorry it's not it is it no just tell me it's called embouchure oh i wasn't gonna get that well, what put, does that mean um uh bouche's mouth yes on is like surrounding okay so, so surrounding the mouth surrounds yeah kind of thing embouchure, en, embouchure. So I, put, I put amusing in there because oh, bouche is like your favorite word no, that's mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry I went dirty on that one. Embouchure. Embouchure. E-M-B-O-U-C-H-U-R-E. Great. Question three. From the Greek for nose horn, members of the rhinoceros family are some of the largest remaining megafauna. Historically, rhinos have been under threat from humans who kill them for their horns, which can cost as much as gold on the black market. What is the name of the protein that makes up not only these precious rhino horns, but also human hair and nails? That's keratin. It is keratin. Yep. Yes. Ooh. Um. There are, there are five kinds of rhinos left, by the way. Um, white. They're actually gray, but they're called white. Okay. Uh, black, Indian, Javan, and Sumatran. Uh, okay. Both African species of rhinos, the white and black, and the Sumatran rhinoceros have two horns, while the Indian and Javan rhinoceroses only have one horn. Okay. And the IUCN red list identifies the black, Javan, and Sumatran rhinoceroses as critically endangered. Sad. Poor they're guys. Mm-hmm. Question four. First appearing in the mid-19th century, making one of the newer instruments in the modern orchestra and concert band, this lonely, low-pitched musical instrument is also one of the largest. What type of instrument is this, which can be made with either piston or rotary valves and is often the butt of a joke? Is it a tuba? It is a tuba. Oh, tuba. Want to tell your tuba story? I will tell my tuba story. So my former boss, Calvin. Hi, Calvin. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, He has a son. And when his son... When his son was like, well, first of all, his son plays the tuba. And according to Calvin, he is a tuba prodigy. <laughs> like, came out of the womb just bump, 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 bump. <laughs> just incredible at the tuba. Just, just amazing. I can't imagine what incredible at the tuba sounds like or looks like, but mm. that's me. I don't know anything about brass instruments. So one, so his son, I will not use his name. His son... It was kind of as as a small child, a little clumsy, mm. and it was his birthday, <laughs> and he was playing at band at school, and he's playing his tuba, and he Ooh. got too close to the edge of the stage, and his <laughs> his chair slid out from underneath him, and he fell down the stairs, ass over tea kettle, just boom boom while boom, in his tuba with his tuba because he's like in the, strapped yeah. into the tuba or whatever, and he falls. <laughs> To the end of the stairs with a tuba on top of him. And then the um, the flagpole <laughs> fell and hit him on the head. Like it was like, he was just like boom, 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 boom. And then tuba and then <laughs> boom, like the entire. And it was his birthday. It was his birthday. And all of his, all of his friends and band, they burst into applause. Yeah. Poor guy. He had a goose egg for the rest of the week. <laughs> Poor little buddy. The tuba, ladies and gentlemen. The tuba. He's like four. It's like 15 now. Still plays the tuba. Good for him. I mean, keep going, man. (laughs) Apparently his teacher at Eastman School is like, he should be like first tuba. tuba. Well, usually there's only one tuba in an orchestra. Who needs more than one tuba, honestly? (laughs) But tuba players, please reach out to us and tell us. What is it about the tuba? 
Well, a person who plays the tuba, okay. they're either called a tubaist or a tubist. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in the UK, a person who plays the tuba in an orchestra is known as a tuba player. And in a brass or military band, they're known as bass players. Oh, okay. Because they provide the bass line. Mm-hmm. I get it. Question five. This large antelope species that roams the arid parts of Africa in the Arabian Peninsula has two straight long horns protruding from the crown of its head. By what name do we call this creature? Despite its name's resemblance to another word meaning black, this antelope is usually pretty pale with a few dark marks around the face. I was trying to think of like other words for black, Uh like noir Uh or obsidian or... What if I told you onyx? The black, the word for black is onyx. Onyx, something about YX. I can think, just tell me what it is. Oryx. Oryx, Mm -hmm. son of a beast. O-R-Y-X. So small populations of several oryx species, such as the scimitar oryx, exist in Texas and New Mexico in wild game ranges. All oryx species prefer near desert conditions and can survive without water for long periods. They live in herds of up to 600 animals and both males and females possess permanent horns. Their horns are lethal. (gasps) The oryx has been known to kill lions with them. What? And oryxes are thus sometimes called the saber antelope. Oh, man. That's my official, like, (laughs) familiar. That's my familiar. And um, when I, yeah, when I... Did my Pottermore quiz? He told me that my um, my Patronus is an Oryx. Is it really? Yeah. Oh man, killer of lions, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, it's metal. Question six: Used mainly by the Boy Scouts and in the military, what boogie wiggy device is one of the simplest brass instruments having no valves or other pitch altering devices? That's a bugle. It is the bugle. Uh, yep. The bugle developed from early musical or communication instruments made of animal horns, with the word bugle itself coming from bucolis latin for bullock or castrated bull oh no the earliest bugles were shaped in a coil great Mm -hmm. that uh the boogie woogie bugle boy was the song that my dad and i danced to at my wedding yes they did a fantastic job we we practiced for weeks we did choreography (laughs) it was great dave tag was like get some water we're going again i'm not gonna look like a fool out there and it ended up being pretty good so question seven (laughs) Males of this species possess three brown horns, one on the nose and one above each eye, somewhat reminiscent of the dinosaur called Triceratops. In fact, that's partially how it got its genus and species name. The Triosaurus jacksoni is what type of reptile, which is a master of disguise? Uh, is that a chameleon? It is a chameleon, specifically Ooh. the Jackson's chameleon here. Oh, okay. So despite looking like a scary monster, Jackson's chameleons live primarily on a diet of small insects. They also prey on centipedes, isopods, millipedes, spiders, lizards, small birds, and snails oh in gosh. their native habitat. And they're native to East Africa, but have been introduced to Hawaii, Florida, and California. I love their little like mitten hands. <laughs> you know, they got like a yeah. thumb and then they've got like a pad. <laughs> And did you ever see that video that went viral of the woman who's got a chameleon as a pet and she's like blowing bubbles and she's like, get him. And he's like, uh, he's like trying to pop him with his little <laughs> oh, hands. It is. I'll show you after we so record. Cute. It is the cutest yeah, thing. Chameleons are adorable. I'm not scared of those types. No, of they're lizards. super cute. Question eight. True or false? The same guy who invented the saxophone also developed a family of horn instruments called sax horns. I'm going to say False. Okay, the answer is true. Ah, poop. Adolf Sachs not only invented the saxophone and the sax horn, but also the saxotromba uh, and the sax tuba families. All right, that's enough with the sax stuff. All right, Adolf. Adolf. Uh, the sax horns are a family of seven brass instruments. They're designed for band use, and they are pitched alternately in E flat and B flat, like oh. the saxophone group. Modern sax horns still manufactured and in use include the B flat soprano sax horn, aka the flugel horn. Oh hey. And the B flat baritone sax horn, also called the baritone horn or euphonium. Okay. Sax horns. Sax horns. But also the saxotrombas and the sax tubas are <laughs> saxotromba. Uh, question nine, multiple choice. On which type of animal would one find an ossicone? Is it A, a horse, B, a giraffe, C, a dolphin, or D, a human? I'm going to say a giraffe. It is a giraffe. Yes. Um, ossicones are horn or antler-like protuberances on the heads of giraffes and male okapis. Oh, hey. Ossicones are similar to the horns of antelopes and cattle, except that they are derived from ossified cartilage rather than living bone, and that the ossicones remain covered in skin and fur rather than horny keratin. Oh, yeah, because they got little nubbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very cute. Yeah. And purple tongues. Yeah. Yeah, they're very mm-hmm. cute. 
And finally, question 10. This instrument is pretty chill. It tends to get marched out instead of a French horn because its bell faces forward instead of backward or to the side. I know. I'd like to hear some more of it. What's this three-valve brass instrument called? Is it like icy marshmallow? I can't tell what your what the what your <laughs> what your hints are. Um, I was gonna say euphonium, but you had already mentioned it earlier. Is it? I don't know. What is it? It's called a mellophone. A mellophone. Oh man! So basically, it sounds like a French horn, but instead of the bell like facing backward like a French horn does, it uh-huh. faces forward. Okay, so you can get that that mm-hmm. sweet sweet tone. Yeah, yeah, a mellophone. the mellophone. So just some extra info. A horn is any family of musical instruments made of a tube, usually made of metal and then often curved in various ways with one narrow end into which the musician blows and a wide end from which sound emerges. In horns, unlike some other brass instruments like the trumpet, the bore gradually increases in width through most of its length. That is, it's conical rather than cylindrical. And in jazz and popular music contexts, the word may be loosely used to refer to any wind instrument. And a, and a section of brass or windwood instruments or a mixture of the two is usually called a horn section in these okay. contexts. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then animal-wise, horns are distinct from antlers, which are not permanent. A horn is a permanent pointed projection on the heads of various animals consisting of a covering of keratin and other proteins surrounding a core of live bone. In mammals, true horns are found mainly among the ruminants in the families Antilla capridae, which are prong horns, and bovidae, which are cattle, goats, okay. antelope, yeah, yeah. etc. All right. Good to know. There you go. That was great. That's a very good quiz, Joel. <laughs> um, so we do have a little bit of, I guess, listeners submitted trivia. I'm not sure if this is trivia, but it's it's good information to know. Yes. So we got a note from um, a listener named Jesse, and uh, she says, hey, ladies, I just wanted to drop you a note because I just started listening thanks to Trivial Warfare. Hey, Trivial Warfare. Ooh. And I love your show. I am originally from upstate New York, but live in Maine now. It warmed my heart to hear someone else say crick instead of creek. And then she put a big <laughs> sparkly heart. Uh, she's from outside of Auburn. I remember going to the Seward house on a field trip. And despite being a weirdly morning kid, I do not remember the bloody sheets. So I'll have to go back when I go home for Christmas. The bloody sheet is very good. Lastly, I wanted to tell you, I have been to a pumpkin regatta. Uh, so, like, ages ago, yeah. we talked about we were a like, pumpkin regatta. Oh, man. If you've ever been inside a thousand-pound pumpkin that's been hollowed but, out to ride in the water. have watched a person try and use a pumpkin <laughs> as a, as a, as a seaworthy yeah. vessel. <laughs> so, she's been to a pumpkin regatta. Oh, so, finally, awesome. we get it. She says, there is one up here in Damariscota, Maine, and it is buck wild. Uh, the town has a whole festival every year devoted to gigantic pumpkins. This year's biggest was something like 1,700 pounds. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. I haven't made it to the regatta in a few years because it used to be on the weekend, but it got so popular that they moved it to a Monday for crowd control, <laughs> which is a bummer. Oh my God. These guys attach outboard motors to their half-ton <gasps> pumpkins and race around the inlet. It's the most glorious thing. So if you ever have a chance to go to a pumper regatta, it's well worth it. Maybe you even have by now. Anyway, oh. I'm going to get back to listening. Thank you for a great podcast. Um, Okay, first of all. That's so charming. I love it. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. That was amazing. Also, we have to get to this pumpkin regatta. (laughs) Okay, next summer, we need to go to Damaris, go to Maine. We're doing a... Do, All right, we got to do a New England yeah, tour Miss of Info Pod, Yes, Miss Info Pod tours we gotta Maine. Go, we got to go back to Boston and yep. see the molasses. Yes. The whole thing about the molasses stuff. Yes. We're going to go. We got to look at some witch stuff because what yeah. do you do if not stop in Salem? And then we're going to this pumpkin we regatta. Go pumpkin regatta. We have to. I need to watch a guy try <laughs> and not sink his ass in an inlet in a giant pumpkin. That's amazing. I love it. So thank you, Jesse. Yeah, so we've got so many fun emails from people, again, who have either discovered us um, as a result of us showing up on other podcasts. So thank you so much to Triviality and Trivial Warfare for having us on in recent months. Um, Also, um, you should check out um, our friend Andrew Thomas's podcast, um, 10 Things I Wish You Knew. We also just guested on that as well. Um, So you should check him out too. It's another fun um, trivia podcast with definitely full of um, information that we all need to know about certain Absolutely. topics. Absolutely. And we are definitely going to have Andrew on as a guest yes. presenter of info, a Mr. Info, a if Mr. you will, info. Mm-hmm. Um, in a future episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, also, uh, we have had a recent donation from a 
contributor named Sarah M. Thank you so much, oh, Sarah. Thank it you, was Sarah. very was generous. So generous. So generous. And um, so she donated to our PayPal. And if you also would like to toss a couple bucks for overhead, like um, hosting fees and just like doodad stuff, because we do this for free. We both have (laughs) full-time jobs that pay our bills. And we just do this because we like information and we love talking to each other on microphones (laughs) and putting it out. We're like, well, we talk to each other anyway. I know we might as well put a microphone and record it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We do have uh, a PayPal button on our twitter page and also on our website and sarah m you will definitely be a gold star listener on our website thank you so much thank you so um much. oh by the way also if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out on december 25th um and you know say you're around your house this week or oh whatever and you're off work i can't believe we made it this long to say this um <laughs> december 27th and 28th you can catch me julia yes. Novakovic on who wants to be a millionaire um so my episodes are airing on thursday and friday the 27th and 28th of december um so if you're listening to this after the fact you can probably find me on youtube somewhere yes um but check your local listings yeah, check everybody your local listings um so we'll share some info on the on the facebook page as well for people it's a it great out. episode honest to god and so i good. mean you get to see lauren too so that's fun yeah you can hear me just screaming insanely in the background you uh, and i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't like yay it was like, ah! like I screamed like I was being murdered. And in in the, I think it's the last episode, the second episode, you can, as he's like, and thank you to Julia. Bye. And everyone's like, clap, clap, clap. You can just hear me in the background like, "Ah." like, like, very quietly in my big, loud mouth. So, but it's not about me. It's about Julia. And she did a great job. It's such a good episode. It's very exciting. She did so good. She was funny. She was like banter, banter with Chris Harrison, oh, the host. You're too kind. She looked great. Just just wait till Lauren's episode airs. We don't know when Lauren's are going to yeah, air I'm, yet. I'm still a TBD. Obviously, we'll, we'll, uh, we will share that information yep. with everybody too. But yeah, you could check me out on TV. Check it out. It's, it's well worth it. <laughs> it's well worth searching around for when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire comes up. Uh, and if you would like to contact us, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. Um, we have a Facebook page, Misinformation and Trivia Podcast. And again, we have our website, www.misinfopod.com. You can also stream us on our website, www.misinfopod.com. Uh, uh, you can also catch us on um, iTunes slash uh, Apple Podcasts, See, Google it's Play. Confusing. It's confusing. It is confusing. Google Play, Stitcher, or um, use our RSS feed with any podcast app that you prefer. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's everything. I think that's everything. We I have hope, a lot to cover today. Yeah, I hope you have a happy holidays. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you next year or yeah. something. Like yeah, that. see you next we'll catch year, you in guys. 2019. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.